Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Friday, June 4th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. COVID-19 precautions largely prevented outbreaks of the flu this past winter, and they also may have caused two types of flu viruses to go extinct. Speaking of extinction, sharks apparently lost 90% of their population 19 million years ago and have never fully recovered. And what day-to-day life is like for the first team to arrive in Japan for the Tokyo Olympic Games. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So you probably remember this past winter, maybe you remember the segment from this show, that flu cases were down to almost nothing this past season. Despite a fear that usual peaks in the flu between December and February would cause hospitals to overflow with patients on top of the COVID-19 patients, it turned out that all the preventative measures like masks, distancing, and crucially not traveling internationally that we were taking to reduce the spread of the novel coronavirus also helped keep the flu at bay. That and a lot more people than usual got the flu vaccine. And Johns Hopkins reported in January, quote, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that the flu causes up to 45 million illnesses, up to 810,000 hospitalizations, and up to 61,000 deaths each year in the United States. But this flu season, there have been just 925 cases of the flu around the U.S. so far, end quote. That's huge or rather minuscule, I suppose. And while part of that could absolutely be caused by people who would have usually gone to the hospital for their symptoms not going due to the general hesitancy to go to COVID-19-filled wards during the pandemic, that is still an enormous drop-off. However, the fear when those numbers started coming out quickly became that this coming flu season would be even worse. And that's due to the fact that a lot of people won't be following the same preventative measures as last year, but also that we weren't given a chance to work up immunity to certain strains like usual. And the lack of circulation of the flu made it more difficult for virologists to predict which strains they should make vaccines for. And in recent years, even before the pandemic, this has gotten substantially more difficult. Helen Branswell reports in Stat, quote, In the eight years leading up to the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the subtypes of influenza A viruses started acting bizarrely. Flu viruses continuously evolve to evade the immune defenses that humans develop to fend them off. But after 2012, H3N2 started to behave differently. It was almost as if there was a falling out within a family. The viruses formed into factions, clades in virologists' language, drifting further and further apart with each passing year, and making the process of choosing the version of H3N2 to include in flu shots an increasingly challenging task. The greater the genetic distance between the clades, the bigger cost of making the wrong choice. Vaccine that protects reasonably well against one might perform poorly if the other turned out to be the dominant strain in a given winter. In fact, that's precisely what happened in the 2017-18 season, when the flu shot failed to protect three-quarters of vaccinated people in the U.S. against the H3N2 strain in circulation, end quote. So with that mounting challenge and now the lack of data from which virologists could identify a dominant strain this past season, and with people's immunity potentially weakened against certain strains, public health experts have already been bracing themselves for a gnarly 2021-22 flu season. But Branswell shared some potentially very good news yesterday instead. 
Because of those preventative measures giving the flu less chances to infect people, it appears that one of the rebellious H3N2 clades may have gone extinct. And it's not the only one. One of the influenza B lineages, B. Yamagata, may also have died off. Branswell reports that neither B. Yamagata nor the H3N2 clade called 3C3A have been spotted in over a year, according to the international databases that monitor flu evolution. Both Trevor Bedford, a computational biologist at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, and Florian Kramer, a flu expert at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, have been keeping an eye on the databases and are hopeful but skeptical about the 3C3A and B. Yamagata's extinctions. Kramer said, quote, Just because nobody saw it doesn't mean it's disappeared completely, right? But it could, end quote. Ben Cowling, a flu expert at Hong Kong University and a skeptic about B. Yamagata's disappearance, makes the point that scientists worked so hard to get the quadrivalent vaccines you may have noticed in recent years, and now they may only need trivalent again. That's because there are essentially four versions of the flu virus that currently cause human disease. You've got influenza A and influenza B. Now, under influenza A, there are two subtypes currently transmitting, H1N1 and H3N2. Then there are subclassifications under those, including the 3C3A subclassification that might be gone for good now. Under influenza B, there's just two lineages, B. Victoria and B. Yamagata. So the quadrivalent flu vaccine is a four-in-one shot that includes a version of H1N1, H3N2, B. Victoria, and B. Yamagata. Now, even if B. Yamagata and 3C3A are both gone, we'd still need a vaccine that included other clades of H3N2. And Richard Webby, director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center for Studies on the Ecology of Influenza in Animals and Birds, is betting that the B. Yamagata viruses aren't gone yet. He points out that the influenza B virus lineages do have a habit of going quiet for a bit and then reappearing later. But he says it's possible we'll lose some of the diversity of H3N2, and as the most diverse one that had clades growing more and more distinct from one another in recent years, he says, quote, if we have to pick a subtype to lose diversity in, that would be the one, end quote. So what does this mean going forward? Will it make a difference this year? That remains to be seen, but it's definitely welcome news in a year when virologists have had an unusually challenging task ahead of them in picking which strains to include in the vaccine. And speaking to Ari Shapiro on NPR's All Things Considered yesterday afternoon, Branswell suggested that we should take this as a learning opportunity. Some behaviors from before the pandemic will obviously return. Opening schools, international travel, less mask wearing— but if people aren't feeling well or if their kid is sick, Branswell said people should absolutely stay home. Now, I'm not super optimistic personally, but I do hope that many employers have learned the value of stopping the spread of disease and the possibilities in occasional remote work. Or, you know, even better, just giving people ample sick leave and paid time off. But that's for another day. For now, I will take a possible win where I can. And less diversity in flu strains is definitely a win.
The Olympic Games in Tokyo are still going forward despite sharp public opposition. According to a recent poll, 80% of people in Japan don't want the nation to host the Games. Health experts and top medical associations have urged the company to cancel them, and it was announced Wednesday that 10,000 of the event's 80,000 volunteers have quit, most of them citing concerns about the coronavirus. Which is valid. As the nation prepares to welcome people from all over the world, the host City of Tokyo is under a state of emergency in response to a fourth wave of the virus, and a mere 3% of the nation have been vaccinated, an alarmingly low number that some blame on the distraction of the games. But continue on, they will, and this week the first athletes arrived in Japan to train ahead of the game's beginning. The New York Times reported on the experiences of the Australian women's softball team, offering our first real look at just what precautions will be rolled out. As second baseman and outfielder Tali Moore said, We're the guinea pigs at this point. And quoting from the Times, There are daily PCR tests. The players are confined to three floors of their hotel in Oda City, about two and a half hours from Tokyo in Gumma Prefecture, and use one elevator separated from other guests. They eat in their own dining room. Only six people are allowed in the gym at a time, so the 23 athletes have a rotating schedule. They're not allowed to visit local bars, restaurants, or shrines, but they can gather in a hotel meeting room outfitted with a Nintendo Switch. End quote. Residents of Oda City say they had no idea their town was hosting teams at all until they saw it reported on the news, and they now worry about the public health risk. Though the Japanese government is providing $115 million in protective measures against infection for host cities. That lack of communication may be in part due to the fact that over 400 communities that had previously signed up to host foreign Olympic teams withdrew their offers. And meanwhile, 100 teams from around the world decided not to attend. For those that are still hosting, they and the athletes are agreeing to a number of rules, including the athletes signing a form agreeing not to make contact with the general public. The Australian softball team is trying to take it all in stride, saying they know how much of the Japanese public opposes the games happening, so they want to, quote, set a strong example and obey all safety protocols. The team has also brought along a doctor and well being counselor as part of their staff, something the Times notes they wouldn't usually do for international competitions before the pandemic. When the teams move to Olympic Village, dining halls will have staggered schedules and partying will be strongly discouraged. That, plus the inability for friends and loved ones to make the trip in support, and a general lack of celebratory pomp and circumstance, has put a bit of a damper on an event many athletes have spent their entire lives working towards. In the words of second baseman Moore, it's a business trip, basically. End quote. At FanDuel Casino, we know the only thing better than a win is a free win. That's why we made Reward Machine, the daily free to play game that gives you a chance to win up to $2,000 in casino bonus. We've given away over $50 million in free bonuses, and we're just getting started. Every day at 6 p.m., you get three chances to spin the Reward Machine reels. There are three ways to win one, match any three symbols for an instant win, two, collect symbols each day for a chance to win weekly prizes, or three, win up to $2,000. 
if you collect three trophies. FanDuel has given away over $50 million to hundreds of thousands of people through Reward Machine. So what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Casino app by going to FanDuel.com slash PA3 and start playing Reward Machine today. That's FanDuel.com slash PA3. No purchase necessary. 21 plus and present in PA. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable casino only site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. Sharks are old, like way old. At 400 million years old, they are literally older than dinosaurs and more resilient than them, too, in a way. And the extinction event that killed all non-avian dinosaurs 66 million years ago, sharks only lost about a third of their population. And that's not the only extinction event that sharks have survived. They persevered through at least four mass extinction events, including one from the early Miocene era that was just revealed in a new study yesterday and apparently wiped out 90% of their population. Ars Technica is calling it a sharkpocalypse. Quoting National Geographic, Nobody knows what triggered the extinction, but whatever occurred, it must have happened in roughly a hundred thousand years, the geological blink of an eye. Bizarrely, the extinction doesn't align with any known major shift in Earth's climate or any major evolutionary change among other open ocean predators. End quote. Elizabeth Seibert, a Hutchinson postdoctoral fellow at Yale, is the lead author on the study. Quoting Vice, She first discovered evidence of this cataclysmic die-off while studying ichthyoliths, tiny fossils of fish scales and teeth, as a junior fellow in the Harvard Society of Fellows at Harvard University. Using trace fossils extracted from a deep-sea sediment core from the South Pacific Ocean, she was able to reconstruct a record of fish and shark abundances that covered the past 80 million years. The sediments contained a roughly equal number of scales from both fish and sharks until an asteroid hit Earth 66 million years ago, killing off the dinosaurs as well as many sharks. This extinction event reduced the fish-shark ratio to 5 to 1, a figure that remained relatively stable until suddenly in the early Miocene, traces of sharks suddenly decreased tenfold. Seibert and co-author Leah Rubin combed through 798 shark scales, or denticles, from the South Pacific site, along with 465 denticles from a location in the North Pacific, and meticulously categorized them into 88 related morphological groups. And while all 88 groups were present before the Miocene extinction event, only eight of them were detected in sediments on the other side of it. This finding revealed that the sharks were not only decimated in sheer numbers, but that they also experienced a 70% drop in the biodiversity of shark species, end quote. So what happened that caused the animals to pare down to modern population numbers from what relatively would have seemed like a veritable sharknado? One possible explanation for the sharp population drop would be a kind of short-term climate event that hit the Earth 19 million years ago. And while there's no record of that now, it wouldn't be an unprecedented kind of discovery. Quoting again from National Geographic, In the 1980s, researchers noticed that deep-sea sediments showed that marine plankton went through a major extinction about 55 million years ago. Later evidence revealed that at that time, carbon dioxide levels rose rapidly, causing temperatures to rise and Earth's oceans to acidify. Geologists now closely study this period, which is called the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, to learn more about how Earth might respond to human-caused climate change. 
end quote. And that's an important side of this discovery. Modern open ocean shark populations have dropped 71% since 1970 due to human activity like overfishing. 71% in just 50 years. The 90% population drop of sharks overall took place over a period of 100,000 years, and shark populations have apparently never recovered from that. So what could this recent drop mean for the future of sharks and the ocean writ large? Ars Technica spoke to Seth Finnegan, an associate professor at the University of California, Berkeley, who was not involved in the study. And Finnegan would like to see more evidence for this finding, noting that it relies on just two samples, but also that it's very intriguing and more research on it could provide valuable information about shark conservation today. Quoting Ars, according to Finnegan, sharks are an essential part of their ecosystems, and having large swaths of them kick the bucket could produce impacts that we don't yet fully understand. They tend to be very important apex predators in a lot of ecosystems, very important in regulating ecosystem structures, he said, end quote. And as shark paleobiologist Mohamed Batsi told National Geographic, quote, in a way, it does show clearly how fragile these top predators, these charismatic animals, are to any sort of sudden environmental change. It has tremendous implications today, end quote. Cars, rockets, our brains, and now our stomachs. Elon Musk wants to control it all. Last week, according to Bloomberg, Musk's company Tesla filed an application with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to use its suite of logos for restaurant services. And Bloomberg notes that the trademark indicates potential plans for growth, possibly franchising the concept. Musk has thrown out the idea of opening a diner for years, most recently tweeting about turning an upcoming Tesla supercharger location in Santa Monica into an old-school drive-in-style diner, complete with roller skates and an outdoor screen for classic movie clips. AV Club took a swing at some possible menu items, quote, All right, everyone, break out the Tums and brace yourself for all the Musk Burgers, Elon's Electrifying Nacho Platters, Mars Bar Pies, Tesla Tots, and Grimes Green Salads you can stomach, at least until the food code violations start rolling in, end quote. In other news, Apple's annual WWDC event is this Monday the 7th at 1 p.m. Eastern. They're expected to announce updates on notifications, messages, and accessibility for iOS 15, possibly new MacBook Pros, and maybe, though probably not, some kind of teaser for their long-rumored AR-VR headset. As usual, if you want the full rundown and commentary after the fact, be sure to listen to our sister show, Tech Meme Ride Home, hosted by Brian McCullough, to stay up to date. But that is it for this week on this show. As always, it was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.